There is no neutral ground with Jesus. Um, we either have to love him or hate him. C.S. Lewis is usually credited with, you know, this liar, lunatic, or Lord argument for Jesus' divinity. Now, some of you may have heard this argument before, but for those of you who haven't, I'm going to read the whole quote for you. He says, I'm trying to, here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me completely obvious he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, some like to argue about how good of an argument that may or may not be for Christ's divinity. I think it's a good one. But this line of argument was not invented by a, a white 19th century Anglican from Britain. It was first spoken by a brown Palestinian Jew named Jesus in the first century. This morning we're going to hear from Jesus from his own mouth say that there is no neutral ground with Jesus. You have to make a decision about Jesus. And the consequences of that decision are going to echo throughout eternity. And so our passage this morning, if you turn in your Bibles, is in Luke chapter 11. We're starting in verse 14, and we'll go all the way to 36. And so if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Starting in Luke 11, verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. But then goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God 
and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness." If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Would your light shine upon us? Would you make your face to shine upon us? And would you help us to heed the words of your Son? And would you help us to not be against Jesus, but to be with him? We pray this in your precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Point number one, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is this question. Are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? Are you with Jesus or against Jesus? It's what all of us have to decide. We have to decide what we really do believe about Jesus. Do we really believe that Jesus is God himself? born of a virgin? Do we believe that the words of Jesus are the very words of God? Do we believe that He worked these miracles? Do we believe that He lived a perfect life? Do we believe that He died on the cross for our sins and was truly dead? And do we believe that on the third day He rose again? Are we with Jesus or against Him? Jesus says this in verse 23, which is the key verse, I think, of our passage. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. But why would Jesus say this? What would lead to Him proclaiming this to a crowd? Turn back to verse 14. He says, Now He was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. So far, it seems great. Okay, we catch Jesus again after teaching on prayer, and we find him casting out demons. This particular demon has made a man mute. The man has not been able to speak for a long time. Jesus sends the demon away, now the man is free. And once again, the man can speak, the crowd marvels in amazement. That is a phrase we have heard over and over again so far throughout Jesus' miracles. He does a miracle, and the crowd marvels. But something's about to change. Something's going to be different moving forward in the book of Luke and how people respond. Because Jesus is no longer just hanging out in Galilee. He is now heading towards Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, it said Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Okay, he is heading now towards the cross. He is heading straight towards his death. And every step he takes in that direction is going to lead to more opposition and more conflict. And now we see some of the first hints of that. We see with how the crowd is going to respond to this miracle in 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That does not sound like marveling to me. 
They do not just reject Jesus as being the Messiah. They don't just reject Jesus as their Savior and God. They don't just say he must be a nice teacher. They say Jesus has the power of Satan, not God. Beelzebul, it's an old name. Seems to be a name for Satan taken from the old Canaanite god Baal, which you may remember. It's the height of insult and mockery. They're attributing the work of Christ to Satan or to Canaanite gods. They believe it's some kind of elaborate act demons are putting on to fool people. Some people still make this objection to Jesus today. Now, they might not say that Jesus is working by the power of Beelzebul, but they will accuse Jesus' work as being evil. They'll just use different words instead. Might say things like, well, Jesus is on the wrong side of history. Well, his words are old-fashioned. They're out of date with our modern world. Say things like religion's the opiate of the masses. They might say that Christ's teaching on sexuality particularly is harmful or repressive. Christ's views on him as being the only way to salvation is toxic. The world might not dare to call something demonic, but they won't hesitate to call it evil and wrong. And Jesus wants to show the crowd particularly how foolish their argument is. Knowing their thoughts, he says to them, Okay, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided household falls. If Satan's divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus just wants to examine their accusation logically. They say Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus wants to know, how does that make any sense, guys? He points out the logic. Any kingdom that's divided, any nation that's divided is going to fall. A nation at civil war with itself is not going to be very strong. A football team that is punching itself on the sidelines is probably not going to win the game. A marriage isn't going to last if both people hate each other and want nothing to do with each other. Division destroys that kind of unity. And Jesus wants to know, how is Satan's kingdom going to work if he is giving people power to cast out demons and destroy his own kingdom? Why would Satan be behind a civil war between demons? It doesn't make any sense. Satan wouldn't give somebody the power to destroy himself. Their objection to Jesus is illogical. And the rejection of Jesus based on these claims doesn't make any sense. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He kind of keeps going. He continues to tear apart their argument. He goes on in verse 19. Okay, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And who are the sons Jesus is pointing to? It seems like Jesus is referring to his disciples here. Okay, the disciples that we know throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has empowered them. He has given them his authority to cast out demons. Started with his 12 and then the 72. And this seems to be something they've been doing. They're coming back. They're telling Jesus about all the demons they've been casting out, how everyone is marveling. So Jesus points at them and says, well, okay, how about them? Nobody's objected to their casting out demons. You haven't said that my disciples are casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus wants to know, if you think I'm doing it by the power of the prince of demons, how are they doing it? We even saw in Luke 9.49 that Jesus' disciples found other people who weren't disciples of Jesus, and yet they are casting out demons. How? By using the name of Jesus. So people are running all around the nation of Israel, casting out demons by the power of Jesus, using the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, where do you think that power from all of those people comes from? 
Jesus has them trapped. Because if they say the power is coming from Satan, they need to stop everybody because it must all be coming from Satan. Or if they say, well, you're doing it by Satan's power, but they're doing it by God's power, well, then it falls apart. They're also they're saying they're doing it in Jesus' power in the name of Jesus. Logically, it doesn't work. So why Jesus says, they are going to stand as your judges. They are the witnesses who will condemn you. You are rejecting Jesus. But Jesus doesn't stop there either. He keeps going. Verse 20, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, if I'm doing this by the power of God, which he is, the kingdom of God is here. It has come upon you. It is approached. It is at your gates. You've got to respond to it. Are you with Jesus or against Jesus? You have to make a decision. Do you want to be in the kingdom or do you want to be out of the kingdom? And his reference to the finger of God is an important one. It's a deliberate choice. It's not just a random metaphor Jesus chose to use. Can you think of another time in Scripture, maybe where the finger of God is mentioned? I can think of two. First one is in Exodus chapter 19, or 18, verse 19. Moses is working the plagues on the people of Egypt, and Pharaoh's e magicians are reproducing the plagues. They're telling Pharaoh, ah, don't worry, this isn't really God, this is a magic trick. We can do it. Look, we'll do this one. But then the third plague comes, the plague of gnats, and suddenly the magicians try to do it on their own, and they can't. And then they go to Pharaoh, and they say, Pharaoh, this is work is from the finger of God. Another place is the tablets, tablets containing the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses written by the finger of God. And Jesus is claiming the same God that gave them the law that they loved, the same God who saved them out of slavery in His power is at work here in Jesus question is, do they want to be with Jesus or against him? He continues in 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when the strong, someone stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The story Jesus is telling, Satan is the one who is the strong man. He is the one who is armed and guarding his territory, guarding his palace. His territory, the palace would be the people who are possessed by demons. Were the places in the world where Satan's strongholds are the most firm. But Jesus is the one who is stronger. Jesus is the one who attacks the demons not with magic, not with his strong carpenter's muscles, not with complicated rituals. He's so strong, he captures and overpowers the demons with just a word. He takes away the demon's armor, he gets the spoils, and he divides them and gives them away. He gives people back their freedom and he gives us so much more. And then people have to choose in 23, the key verse, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Scattering is always used, especially in the Old Testament, as a judgment. Like when a nation comes and takes over a city, the people scatter and run away and flee. You can be with Jesus and be gathered to safety or you can be judged and scatter and run. It's the choice we all have to make. Are we with Jesus or not? Do we believe Him or do we reject Him? There's a sense in which the crowd is actually getting this right. Um, even though they're wrong. They've been marveling up till now. They've been impressed. But now Jesus wants them to make a decision. Is Jesus God or is He not? 
Are you, do you want to be in the kingdom that's come upon you, or do you want nothing to do with it because you have to make a decision? You can't put it off until tomorrow. You can't think, ah, Jesus is okay. I kind of like him. Some stuff I'm not a big fan of. No, it's either you're all in with Jesus or you're all out. And there are some in the crowd who are all out. At least they're making the decision. In 24, Jesus shows the danger of thinking you can just be agnostic about Jesus. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. So by this, he means a demon that's been cast out of somebody. So now it's wandering around desolate places, waterless places, or where people wouldn't live because they need water. He's looking for someone else to possess. Can't find somebody else. So finding none, it says, I'll return to my house, being the person that was just cast out of it, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put into order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there, and the last day of the person is worse than the first. What does this mean? Well, Jesus means this. It's not enough to be against Satan if you're not with Jesus. Jesus can cast those unclean spirits out, but you've got to let Jesus and the Holy Spirit come in. The house is clean, but there's nobody living in it. The gospel can come and be preached to you, the good news of Jesus and the kingdom, it can come into your life. Okay, things can get swept up and your life could get put back in order. You could try and apply some good biblical principles and wisdom. But if you just let Jesus kick the demons out of your life and you don't let Jesus come in, you don't let the Holy Spirit come and live in your heart and in your life, and if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, you are going to be worse than you were before Jesus came. The point of this passage of what Jesus is saying, he's not trying to teach us how to keep demons away. Um, he's not trying to tell us the intricacies of what demons do after they've been cast out. Um, the point of it is, you need to be with Jesus. You got to be all in. Jesus needs to dwell in the temple that is our bodies. And I think we see this principle at work today, even though we don't often see demons cast out. We can see this with those um, who grow up in church, especially as children can get a front row seat to the kingdom of God every single week. But if they leave these walls and they don't ever come into the kingdom themselves, they never accept Jesus as their Savior, and then they leave, things are going to get really hard. We have to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus? Are we with Jesus? Are we all in with Jesus, or are we against Jesus? Because Jesus will not accept anything less than all in. If you want to sit on the fence, Jesus says, no, that's deciding you don't want anything to do with me. So that's point number one. We've got to be with Jesus or against Jesus. Point number two tells us that being against Jesus leads to judgment. Being against Jesus leads to judgment. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 29. Don't worry, we'll come back to 27 and 28, but I want to give you the bad news first so that we can end with the good news. So the bad news is that being against Jesus... Deciding you do not believe Jesus, you don't trust Jesus, you don't want to put your faith in Him as your Savior, that will lead to judgment. Not judgment like other Christians are just going to look down on you and think we're better than you. Judgment as in one day you will stand before the white throne of God. Where Jesus will sit and then when you're, whether this happens after you die or when Christ returns, you will come and stand before Him and He will weigh and judge your life. And he's not weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds. 
He's not using some complicated moral system to see if you've put more good into the world than bad. There's one criteria. Are you with Jesus or not? Have you put your faith in Jesus or have you not? And those who have not accepted Jesus will be judged. 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Notice that Jesus says this as the crowds are getting bigger. Okay, every consultant, church growth guru would tell you, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't shoot yourself in the foot here. Okay, things are going well. Let's keep this crowd going. Let's encourage people. Let's get them to bring more friends. Don't shoot people off. But Jesus continues. He explains why this generation and why these crowds are evil crowds. He says, for it seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So what does he mean the crowd was seeking a sign? You might remember or notice back in verse 16. He said, others, so the others didn't say Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, but they, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So these people are saying, well, Jesus, you know, we don't quite trust him. I don't think he's working with demons, but I'm just not quite sure yet. I'm on the fence. I'm trying to gather more information to figure out what I think. This is like me. I like to gather lots of information before I make any kind of decision. If you saw how much information I like to gather before I make decisions, you might tell me I do a little too much gathering and need to make decisions a little faster. Okay, this is true for the crowds as well. They keep trying to test Jesus. They keep trying to evaluate Jesus. We've seen a lot of miracles in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see a lot more miracles before we're done. But the crowd hasn't seen enough yet. They're going up to Jesus and they're saying, yeah, um, do that again, please. Now, can you do that over here? Okay, actually, could you do it this way instead? Can you do something other than cast out demons? I've seen that one a few times. Do something new. What other tricks do you have for me, Jesus? I, I just feel like I really need you to prove it for me. That one wasn't impressive enough. Because when you look, it says they kept seeking. They are continuing to seek over and over because no matter what Jesus does, no matter what he says or miracle he performs, it's not enough. They want more. And it says particularly they seem to want a sign from heaven. It seems like there's a particular thing that they want God to do. I think it's probably an eschatological or an end times kind of sign that they're looking for. They want to know, Jesus, if you are really the Messiah, and really if you're the kind of Messiah that we want, then we want heaven itself to prove it by destroying the Romans or accomplishing a miracle that's going to set our nation free, give us our independence. I think that's part of what they're going for. But whatever it is that they're seeking, Jesus isn't doing it. He's not a circus monkey here to perform for their entertainment. He is the living God. But that's not enough. They want more. Jesus tells them that this kind of seeking is evil. And he tells them about the sign of Jonah in verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What's the sign of Noah? Well, for three days, Jonah was in the belly of a whale, the bottom of the sea. Jonah himself said he was down in Sheol, in the place of the dead. Jesus says you're going to get a sign like that one. He's foreshadowing his death and his resurrection. He will lay for three days, not in an animal's mouth, but in the mouth of a tomb. 
not in the bottom of the ocean, but in the place where all the dead go. What Jonah experienced metaphorically, Jesus will experience in actuality. That will be their sign. But as the angel told Lazarus in one of Jesus' parables, even after a man comes back from the dead, there will be those who still don't believe it and want to keep seeking another sign. Verse 31, he says, The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear from the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. It's queen of the south. It's the queen of Sheba. You can read about her in 1 Kings chapter 10. She heard about Solomon's wisdom. And she leaves everything behind and travels for months. She can't just hop on a plane to come and hear this wisdom for herself. And when she heard it and she asked and she questioned and she talked to Solomon, she accepted it. And if these crowds are here and they're listening not to the wisdom of a man, even a man blessed by God, they are listening to the wisdom of God. And they go, eh, not sure. Don't know what I think. Jesus says, okay, On that day of judgment, the queen of Sheba is going to stand along with the other members of this generation who have accepted Jesus, and they will also stand in judgment over you. Why? Because they saw the same evidence that you did. In some cases, they saw way less, and they believed. They thought it was enough. You will not be able to stand before God one day and say, well, God, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. You didn't prove it enough. You needed more evidence. There will be a multitude of witnesses who will stand there and say, we saw enough. While you saw way more than we did, and we believed. The men of Nineveh in 32 will also rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, Israel really would not have liked that one. Can we read Jonah? Jonah hated Nineveh. Jonah was not weird for hating Nineveh. Okay, all of us, if we were alive in his day, we all would have hated Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was one of the most brutal and horrific empires still in all of human history. All of Israel hated them. And that's why Jonah ran away. He said, no, God, I don't want them to repent. I want you to kill them all. And God says, hey, when you stand... In judgment before my throne, those Ninevites are going to stand over you, those people that you hate, and they will judge you, saying, we believed. Why didn't you? Those Ninevites who repented when they heard Jonah preaching, I don't know if it's um, been a while since you've read the book of Jonah. Jonah gives what I like to call the worst sermon in the entire Bible. It might be one of the worst sermons ever preached. He would flunk every single preaching class. All he does is walk around and say, hey, uh, 40 days, God's killing you. 40 days, God's killing you. He would stand in right with some preachers around New York City with their signs like that. And so the city hears that sermon. God's going to kill you in 40 days. And revival breaks out like you've never seen before. A city with 120,000 people all tear their clothes and weep and gnash and call for a citywide fast, begging and praying and repenting and turning for their sins and asking God not to kill them. And God listens to them. 
Okay, Jesus is a lot better preacher than Jonah was. Way better. The Sermon on the Mount, it's so good. There are people who quote it and don't know it's from the Bible. They don't know it's from Jesus. There are people who hate the Bible, but there's things in Jesus' sermons like that they love. Like, judge not lest you have been judged. Jesus is greater than Jonah. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than anyone else that you can find. He has none of their weaknesses because he is the perfect man. He is God. He is better, wiser, more amazing than their greatest strengths. And here he is in front of them. He says, if you are not with me, if you are against Jesus, you will be judged and condemned. For the, and who also, when we see these examples Jesus gives, who are the people who respond to Jesus? What does the Queen of Sheba and Ninevites have in common? They're both foreigners. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They are people from far off places. So Jesus is also foreshadowing His salvation. It's going to the ends of the earth, and the Gentiles will believe and repent, while those closest, the Jews, the people of God, will not. There are some today still who are just like those crowds. They challenge God to show them a sign. God, if you're real, kill me right now for blaspheming against you. God, if you, would really, if you really are God, do this and then I'll believe. Okay, God could do that sign immediately, but they'll find excuses right after for why that happened or why that wasn't real. God has already given sign after sign after sign after sign after sign. We have to believe. He ends in the story of saying, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. For if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as a lamp when its rays gives the light. What he means here is that the light of the world is shining upon them. It is here. Jesus is the light of the world. He's in front of their face. He is not hiding. He's not down in a cellar. He's not trying to make it difficult for people to come into the kingdom of God. The light is here. It's shining. If their eyes are healthy, if their hearts are listening, if they're looking, if they look at the light of the world and acknowledge, yes, that is the light, then they can be full of the light of God. But if they look at the light of the world and they say, no, that's not light, that's darkness. That guy's got the power of Beelzebul. It's made up stories. And Jesus says, be careful. What you think is the light is actually darkness and you are full of it. Because Jesus is the light of the world. He's here. We have to accept him. And if we do not accept him, we will be in darkness. And in the final judgment, we will be cast into a darkness from which there is no escape. That is the bad news. Being against Jesus will lead to eternal judgment. But there is good news. Point number three. Being with Jesus leads to blessing. Being with Jesus leads to blessing. Those who accept him will, do it, will be blessed. So flip back over to verse 27. As he said these things, a, crowd, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. It appears like there's a woman who hears Jesus. She's not rejecting Jesus. She's not saying he's doing this by the power of demons. But she's also not expressing fully mature faith in Christ. 
She says, wow, Jesus, your mom must have been so blessed. How amazing that is. Mary, mother of God, she must be so full of holiness and blessing. But in 28, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus corrects her. Now, he doesn't say, no, my mom's not blessed at all. Okay, yes, there are traditions that venerate Mary to a level um, that we disagree with and can even find blasphemous. Jesus wants us, well, does say, well, yeah, I mean, Mary is blessed among all women. We've read that in the Gospel of Luke. But she is not blessed of all women because she got to give birth to Jesus. She is not blessed because she got to nurse Jesus at her breast. Mary is blessed because she heard the words of God and kept them. Mary is blessed because she heard the words of the angel and she believed it. Mary is blessed because she heard the report from the shepherds and she treasured it in her heart. Mary is blessed because she'd obeyed Jesus. She's blessed because it seems as if she's still following Jesus and listening to his words. After all, there are some of Jesus' siblings who grew up with him and don't believe him. Later, they try to stop him and to lock him up and get him to quit. So they weren't blessed. And this blessing, you know, this woman wants to attribute to Mary, it's available to anyone. It's available to anyone who hears the kingdom of God preached, who accept it and who receive it and obey it. They can receive the same blessing that Mary got. They can receive the same blessing this woman thinks is unattainable conceive the blessing of eternal life forever. We can get to be with Jesus and live with Him in a world of love and joy and peace forever, but we have to accept Jesus. We have to be with Jesus. We have to follow Jesus. We have to put our faith in Jesus. All of us have to make a decision and what we do with Jesus, whether we're going to accept Him or reject Him because there is no middle ground. There's no neutrality. We have to put our faith in Him. Because God says those who are lukewarm, who think they can just get by without making a decision one way or another, will be spit out of His mouth. They will scatter. What's nothing to do with them? But if we accept Him, if we follow Jesus, there are blessings beyond our wildest imagination. Not just after we die and get to be with Him in heaven, but here and now. And so we should put our faith in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you, accept Jesus. I want to remind you and offer you the blessings of the kingdom of God that are here. You really do need to believe that Jesus is God. You need to believe that He came and that He died in your place. That He defeated the power of sin and death and so much of what has ruined your life and keeps you from being who God created you to be and who wants you to be. You have to be willing to follow Him. Now, if you hear the words of Jesus and you accept them, then the blessing of God is here for you. If that's you, and you have more questions, I'd be happy to talk to you about Jesus. Pull Pastor Rob or me or any of the elders. We would be over the moon and overjoyed to talk to you about the blessing that comes from being with Jesus. Now, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, who have accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want to remind you of the blessing that that is and the blessing that is waiting for you one day. It is better than anything you could ever dream or imagine.
Where have we been this morning? We have to decide if we're with Jesus or against Jesus. If we're against Jesus, it leads to judgment, and being with Jesus will lead to blessing. I hope that you're with Jesus, because being with Jesus brings eternal life, peace beyond all understanding, and so much more, if we believe. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and I'll invite the worship team to come up to worship our Savior once more. Lord, I, I thank you that the blessings of the kingdom of God have come upon us, that they are here, they are in our grasp and in our reach, that getting to be with you is not just something for the elite, it is not just for those who have their life altogether, it is not just for those who are not too broken or not too unlovable or not too sinful, but it is for all if we would hear your words and accept them and follow you. Lord, help those of us who are in the kingdom, who have put our faith in you. Help us to remember and to be encouraged by the incredible blessing that being with you is. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. That your mercies and your blessings are new every morning. Lord, remind us and encourage us and help us to be with you. I pray this in your holy and your most precious name above all names. Amen. Once you stand as we worship our Savior in song one more time. Amen. There are blessings that come from being with Jesus and our benediction each week is a reminder and a prayer and a proclamation of the blessings of God over you. So hear the blessing of God from Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.